Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. Today's episode is part of a series of episodes examining the relationship between climate and security, produced in partnership with CGIAR, the world's largest global agricultural innovation network. The episode was taped live in front of a virtual audience and featured five panelists discussing the intersection of climate and security in the Sahel region of Africa. As one of the panelists notes, there is no single definition of what constitutes the Sahel region, but it is generally understood to be the region directly south of the Sahara Desert that shares a common semi-arid climate. Countries or parts of countries like Mali, Burkina Faso, Niger, and Chad are considered to be in this region. The Sahel is also a part of the world that faces some very big security challenges. And the conversation between panelists, which I moderate, focuses on the relationship between climate variability in the Sahel and some of these security issues. In the conversation that follows, I begin by making some introductory remarks before I introduce the panelists who represent a diversity of perspectives on this issue. We have a great conversation before I turn it over to Rachel McDonnell of CGIAR, who offers some concluding remarks. The next live taping that will be recorded as part of this series will focus on climate security in Colombia. To participate in that event and in future events, please go to climatesecurity.cgiar.org to sign up. I hope to see you there. So here it is, part four of our climate security series produced in partnership with CGIAR and taped live in front of a virtual audience. Enjoy. Welcome, everyone. My name is Mark Leon Goldberg. I am the editor of the UN and global affairs website, UN Dispatch, and host of the Global Dispatches podcast. Today's conversation about climate security in the Sahel will be recorded as a live taping of the podcast, and I am proud to serve as your moderator today. The Sahel is routinely cited by the UN as one of the regions in the world most vulnerable to climate change. Many of the trends in this region, uh, more than anywhere else, are felt more acutely by people when it comes to climate change. It is also a region with some profound security challenges, including political instability, armed conflict and insurgencies, extreme poverty, and high levels of food insecurity. The international community has long sought to support peace and security in this region, but the results have been mixed. One of the UN's larger peacekeeping missions is currently deployed to Mali, and France is supporting a five-country counterterrorism force known as the G5 Sahel. Yet despite these efforts, security conditions in the region remain extremely tenuous. According to the OECD, with the exception of Senegal, every country in this region is considered either fragile or extremely fragile. 
Uh, in today's conversation, we are going to try to bridge conversations and discussions about climate and security in the Sahel that happen too often independent of each other. We are going to tackle questions around climate and security by drawing on perspectives of experts who do not always find themselves in the same room. Now, the goal here is that by connecting experts working on climate change, food systems, and security, we can potentially bring some new ideas to the table and perhaps chart some innovative solutions to the myriad of challenges facing this region. And to that end, I am pleased to introduce our panel today. Uh, Her Excellency, Ms. Rigmar Elian Koti, is Norway's special representative for the Sahel. Welcome. Dr. Robert Zugmore is the Africa Program, Direct, Africa Program Leader, CGIAR Research Program on Climate Change, Agriculture, and Food Security. Welcome, Robert. Dr. Bruno Charbonneau is the Director Centre Franco Pay in Conflict Resolution and Peace Mission and Professor of International Studies at the Royal Military College in Canada. Welcome. Dr. Catherine Loon Grayson is a Senior Policy Advisor at the International Committee of the Red Cross. Welcome. Ornella Modorin is Head of the Sahel Program at the Institute for Security Studies. And before we dive into this discussion, I do want to note that a version of this conversation will be available with French subtitles. Uh, so with that, let us dive into the conversation. And Ornella, my first question goes to you because I'd like you to set the security context for this region. Uh, to the extent that many conflicts in the region are driven primarily by local concerns or local grievances, is there anything common throughout the region that connects these conflicts? I, another way to think of this, do conflicts in the region share similar characteristics? Well, in fact, the answer to that would be yes. So of course, it's very important to look at the various conflicts uh, that affect the Sahel region for their specificity at a local level. But beyond that, uh, there's a number of common trends. First of them is, I think, the centrality of local conflicts related to land and, na and natural resources throughout various governance systems, geographies, and social groups. This isn't any news, really, but it's quite counterintuitive to the global media focus on larger scale challenges, such as the presence of terrorist groups, for instance. In fact, uh, the overwhelming majority of conflicts in the Sahel region arise locally, uh, and the failure to settle them peacefully at a local level um, leads to, to escalation and to violence. This is also the failure of state justice systems to handle local conflicts, uh, leading to consequences in terms of providing nurturing grounds for violent extremist groups to be able to convince these affected communities that they would do a better job than the state in delivering justice and, de and defending the interests um, of local communities. And another as important aspect, I believe, is that the Sahel communities are increasingly confronted with the scarcity of these resources due to climate change and demographic pressure, uh, the coexistence of parallel and often competing land tenure and natural resource management systems, as well as weak presence of the states. All these contribute to worsening what's already um, fragile local context, setting the stage 
for um, redundant and recurrent conflicts. In the central part of Mali, if I may take this uh, particular example, high levels of competitions and widespread communal violence since 2017 uh, have led to a tendency to essentialize along ethnic lines what really are actually traditional forms of competition between various groups, be them farmers, herders, fishers, in order to access to local resources. So this makes local conflict harder to solve because, of course, while it's possible to negotiate resources, it is much less so to negotiate identities. There are also common trends in the nature of uh, the local grievances behind this conflict. You mentioned some of these in your introductory remarks, Mark. Um, local, uh, the lack of access to basic local services such as health, education, markets, infrastructure, um, insufficient access to the justice system, which is perceived as physically distant, often uh, with premises only in the regional capital or in uh, far away main towns, culturally inaccessible, operating in French and with some kind of esoteric procedures and mainly just corrupt. These grievances um, are, are quite a common trend across Sahel regions, um, actually. Well, um, perhaps just one last thing uh, on my side to finish, I'd just like to say a word about the ever worsening humanitarian situation uh, in the region, which is also an important element to understand the security context, especially in Mali, Niger and Burkina Faso, but also in bordering parts of neighboring Nigeria, for instance. Um, Mali is a good exam example with no less than 2.9 million people, which is over half of the country's population, affected by the humanitarian crisis by mid-2020, according to the uh, UN Agency for Humanitarian Coordination. This is more um, than half of Mali's population. Out of this number, a third of Mali's population is now indeed in need of food assistance to meet basic needs. So, I should say we, we uh, will get to Dr. Catherine Lund Grayson from the ICRC who can provide a little more uh, context and, and nuance to those uh, important figures that you cited. Uh, but that was a very helpful, I think, sketch of the current security challenges facing the region. Uh, and now I'd like to turn to Robert Zugmore to sketch out some of the climate change and climate variability implications uh, in the region. Can you just describe, uh, give a sense of the key ways that climate variability is impacting people's lives and ways that can make them potentially more vulnerable? And what does science tell us about the impact of climate change on the lives and livelihoods of people in the region? Thank you very much, uh, Mark. Uh, not to repeat the previous speakers, I think it is well known that climate change and mostly climate variability has been and is impacting already all sectors of human life and of course of the Sahel region, which is a particularly um, well-known region as climate vulnerability hotspots, and that's the key words. And the population have been experiencing several climate extreme with dramatic consequences. I will just uh, highlight a few of them as uh, an impact of climate variability. Um, we know, for instance, that uh, in terms of science, models are talking differently. 
to speak uh, in an easy way, uh, climate model I'm, I'm, I'm mentioning. But there is a consensus on the overall climate impact on rainfall, which is uh, declining already, especially on the West Sahel. There is also an increase in temperature. And it, it is even expected that uh, by the end of this century, we will maybe experience in the worst scenario, something like three to four degree increase. And in terms of uh, a trend in extremes, uh, there is a general increase in the intensity of, of high rainfalls. And all these translate into con in concrete terms to more severe droughts and increased frequency of these droughts. And we are already seeing some of these things happening uh, in, in, those, in those Sahelian countries. Severe flooding events. And I think nowadays, Niger, Burkina Faso, Mali are also experiencing some flooding which are really uh, endangering lives of, of, of many populations. And we sometimes also forget the effect of extreme temperatures. This is important for cropping, uh, uh, for some crops, but also for human being health. And so these climate shocks lead to additional threat to population lives and livelihood. And I just want to mention three examples. For instance, on food security, there is a, a yield reduction that is expected as a consequence of climate variability. This is what science is saying. Reduced pasture and loss of livestock with degradation of, of the nutrition, the loss of the productive assets. Uh, for instance, the locust invasion is, is bringing some difficult uh, economic situation to vulnerable population. So all these potentially are exacerbating, I would say, the tension and conflict around the limited natural resources. On human health, of course, the resurgence of outbreaks and of pests and diseases links, for instance, to flooding. So malaria, uh, dengue, are some kind of uh, diseases. And to finish, there are also some side effects of, of the climate variability in terms of loss of economic power, the decrease uh, in terms of uh, uh, resilience of the population and, and many others. But I will just stop here for the time being. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Robert. And uh, to you, uh, Dr. Catherine Loon Grayson of the ICRC, uh, you know, Ornella at the beginning, you know, cited some important figures around the humanitarian situation in the region, and uh, Robert just discussed some of the human impacts of climate change. Uh, can you just give us a grounds eye view of how people are impacted by insecurity in the region and how they're coping? Uh, what are the humanitarian and social implications of endemic insecurity and climate variability in this region? So the implications are dramatic and Arnella already alluded to some quite um, telling figures. Here are a few more. A million of people are internally displaced. Nearly, nearly two million people are in a situation of uh, food crisis and that includes nearly 400,000 uh, children that are acutely malnourished. 
we see that the implications affect all dimensions of people's lives from their safety to their health to their life to their health sorry to their livelihoods to their access to food water or to their economic security and this in a number of cases leads to displacement we're seeing that these problems feed into one another and further exacerbate people's vulnerability. If I can take an example of how climate risks and conflict interact to create further vulnerability from uh, Northern Mali, I think that will um, help explaining what we're seeing. So in Northern Mali, in the face of a bad season, herders will normally travel longer distances with their herds to find grazing land and water. Some family members may move to search for work and the state or humanitarian organizations may be able to provide some assistance. Now, when armed conflict and insecurity are added to the equation, people's usual ways of coping are hindered. Herders are no longer able to travel long distances with their cattle because of the insecurity. The state's capacity to assist is limited and the insecurity also limits humanitarian access. So we see that herders are forced to concentrate around water points. Some end up selling their livestock at discounted prices as they cannot move to faraway markets to sell their um, animals. And some who have lost everything end up moving to urban centers or moving further south to greener areas. So what we see there is an already poor population that is becoming even poorer. What's at stake? People's livelihoods, people's safety. Um, and this limits their access to food, which affects their access to health services and so on and so forth. So we have a, a spiral that is extremely um, negative there. We also see that the implications can be far reaching. Along with other megatrends, so we can think here of urbanization or uh, demographic growth, we see that the, the implications of combined climate risks and uh, conflict can shape human mobility or access to resources on a continental scale. So for instance, we're seeing that changes to the Sahelian climate and the environment combined with insecurity in the Sahel is having an impact hundreds of kilometers away in the Central African Republic by altering the patterns of transhumance of um, herders. Turning to how people cope, adapting to climate change can be relatively simple. It may require a simple change in crops, for instance, but in most cases it requires major changes. So a whole agricultural system might need to change or new diseases might need to be dealt with. Ambitious, concerted and long-term efforts tend to be rather limited in times of war as authorities are not only weak, but also preoccupied with security priorities. In the absence of adequate support, people try to cope by changing or diversifying livelihoods, by adapting their way of life or ultimately moving away from their homes. Although we see that the poorest and the most vulnerable in a number of cases will be trapped in place. So what we see in Northern Mali, for instance, is that some move to nearby urban areas, but livelihood opportunities are fairly limited in such settings. Mm -hmm. Other moved further south, as I was mentioning, and in some cases, this is creating tensions and putting resources, putting pressure on resources um, 
And tensions stem from the fact that communities that usually live at a distance suddenly have to find ways to um, to coexist. We so, also see that young men who would normally be moving to find some work may not be able to move because of the because of the insecurity. So in short, people cope, but those who are poor tend to become poorer and they experience greater precarity. Uh, thank you. Um, so, uh, Bruno Charbonneau, I'd like to turn to you now. You know, in just the first few minutes of this conversation, I've heard a far more nuanced and textured conversation and definition uh, of what security means in this region than what I'm accustomed to reading in, in Western media outlets or, or even what I'm accustomed to hearing from experts that I interview who tend to define security in this region strictly in military terms. Uh, so I'm curious to learn from you, what linkages do you see between the situation in the Sahel today and you know, how discussions about fragility in this region tend to be just framed around the military uh, solutions and military terms? Yes, thank you, Mark. Well, if we are to discuss uh, climate security in Sahel, I think we need to keep at least two things in mind. First one is that the Sahel is an imprecise and fuzzy re region, politically uh, indeterminate. No one agrees on its boundaries, where it begins and where it ends exactly. So states and international organizations develop and promote their strategy, strategy for the Sahel, but it is that strategy that usually defines the boundaries of the Sahel. So to this points to actually regional politics, that is a struggles over who defines borders and boundaries of regional space, its identity, meaning, and function. The immediate policy relevance of this can be observed in the creation of G5 cell organization in 2014. In West Africa, ECOWAS is considered the most advanced African re organization uh, in the field of security. And yet the European Union member states African partners, international donors funded and helped create that G5 cell organization. To me, that was an obvious attempt at restricting who gets to define what security is, whose security is prioritized, and so on and so forth. This brings me to my second point. We still live, as far as I'm concerned, in the post 9-11 world. So the climate security nexus was popularized in 2003 with the release of two strategy documents documents, one from the Pentagon, the other one from the European Council. It gained momentum, the idea in 2007 when the Al Gore IPCC were awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. But I, was also, I would also point out the 2007 uh, CNA Corporation report that was signed by dozens of top US generals. And in the document, they make, they make clear links between climate conflict and terrorism and what it means for US national security and global security in general. And their logic is fairly straightforward. If states collapse or fail due to climate change, the conditions will be ripe for the rise of extremists and terrorist groups. This is not causal lo logic per se, but climate change here is conceived as a threat multiplier that um, creates the conditions for that sort of insurgency. And you can see even today that the UN Security Council discusses uh, climate security in such terms and I would point you to the 2007 resolution on Chad uh, as a demonstration or example of that. So uh, this is a context I think uh, uh, that we need to keep in mind to answer your question, Mark. So to bring it back to today's uh, situation, international military corporations were deployed in 2013 and are still operating within this mindset that the French-led operations contribute to the global war on terror. 
So in 2020, Western actors still operate under that premise that you need to wear, wage that war on terror first in order to then guarantee the space for politics, uh, the time and space for the peace process in Mali, for instance, time and space to do development throughout the Sahel. Um, so just to give you another example, despite the 18th August coup d'etat in Mali, French President Macron asked for a quick return to constitutional order so that everyone could go back to fighting terrorists. And the European Union in that context is very explicit about its primary objective. It is to manage the effects of those conflicts in the Sahel in order to contain the flows of illicit migration and goods uh, that might go to Europe. So basically, in short, given that the Sahel is malleable as a space of intervention, you can define it or you can define the intervention you want according to your understanding of Sahel and the threats that you associate with that space. In security and military circles these days, a dominant understanding of the Sahel is one of a non-governed space that emphasizes the threat of terrorist groups. Mm. And so I think to conclude, the key question brings us to uh, the debate about the impact and influence on the global war and terror agenda on the UN, on UN structures and agencies, and how counter-terrorist practices affect efforts to address climate-related security risk and activities. Well, well, thank you. And I think that is a nice lead up to our next speaker, uh, uh, Madame Koti. Uh, you know, Norway has been heavily invested in peace and development in the Sahel, not just on the security side, as uh, Bruno just alluded to. And soon, though, the uh, Norway Norway will have a seat on the Security Council from which it can further advance this more holistic understanding of security in the region. Uh, so can you just for now describe how Norway has integrated climate security into its diplomatic and strategic approach to this region? Uh, thank you, and thank you for having me. Um, yes, that's correct. Uh, I actually just came from uh, giving a brief to Norwegian police who will be deployed to MINUSMA civilian police unit as part of Norway's contribution to the peacekeeping operation in Mali. But the Norwegian engagement in the Sahel started nearly 40 years ago. Uh, the extreme drought in the wider Sahel region and images of starving children called for a coordinated response. And uh, Norway at the time established what we call the Sahel Sudan Ethiopia program that was initiated already in 1985. Uh, so that uh, provided a combination of research and assistance to the region with the aim to reduce and prevent famine, uh, poverty and conflict. Norwegian research institutions, NGOs and the multilateral system worked closely together with the affected countries to increase food production and improve food security. In many ways, the Norwegian engagement in the Sahel actually started because we clearly saw the dramatic effects of climate change that it had on the population. And in the continuation, climate, sustainable resource management and its link to conflict prevention has been a main objective for our efforts. And as you can see in our Sahel strategy, uh, projects related to climate, food security, uh, climate uh, resilient uh, agriculture and conflict prevention are all uh, priorities in our devel development programs in Mali and Niger. 
We have also seen the need to address the nexus between humanitarian assistance and development. Uh, for instance, when we organized the first humanitarian conference on the Lake Chad region in Oslo in 2017. This is a focus on a more general level, also in our humanitarian strategy. And the Norwegian Action Plan on Sustainable Food Systems, uh, there is a recognition that climate-related security risks are shaping the security and development in many countries, uh, such as the Lake Chad and the Sahel regions. Um, as the previous speakers have said, the, the Sahel region uh, is, to con is considered to be one of the most fragile environments in Africa. And knowing that population, population growth in the Sahel is expected to increase dramatically, that the temperatures are expected to increase more than the global average, and that the majority of the population live in rural areas, it is very likely that the pressure on the natural resources will become even more problema problematic. Can um, I just ask, um, when you were briefing the Norwegian police officers who are about to be deployed to the UN peacekeeping mission to Mali, did you bring up climate issues at all or did they ask about climate issues and their relationship with security? Uh, we uh, brought it up in a more general level uh, when we discussed and explained what Norway is actually doing uh, mm. in, in the Sahel. So we didn't have a, a particular focus on, on climate and security, but it was linked to uh, the, the, the rest of our work uh, in, in uh, the region. Uh, thank you. Uh, could uh, I just add a few more things please, before you yeah, please, give the yeah. floor to someone else? Yeah, I just wanted to say that uh, what we see, of course, is that uh, discussing the subjects as we are doing now uh, is very important. And we see that it is even more important to address this with national governments and the regional organizations in addition to the UN uh, and, and the AU. And one of the last events that Norway actually co-organized before the COVID-19 pandemic stopped us from organizing international meetings uh, and, and traveling uh, was a, a seminar in Dakar where we uh, put people together from uh, African and Nordic countries, from the multilateral agencies uh, and researchers uh, to see how multilateral cooperation better could uh, work uh, on the issue of climate and security. And we had uh, we used Sahel as the example. So the recommendations from that workshop or seminar is something that is uh, useful for Norway when we enter the Security Council. Uh, as we know that there are uh, some members that do not agree uh, to bring this subject up on the agenda of the Security Council. Thank you. Well, well, I'm glad you uh, interjected that last point because it leads uh, perfectly to my next question for uh, Ornella. Um, can you, in, in a way similar to what uh, Ms. Koti just described, can you map out what institutions out there, perhaps the African Union or the UN or ECOWAS or countries in the region should be doing to better integrate a more multi-dimensional solution to the security challenges in the region. So are there, for example, any concrete proposals out there for you know, mechanisms or structures that could integrate climate science into security decisions? What exists out there to help us move this conversation forward? So um, I guess to answer your first question, which is uh, what needs to happen, I think, 
a shift in paradigm uh, needs to happen really. As uh, many of my co-panelists mentioned, right now, the way we are addressing insecurity in the Sahel focuses on the military aspect of it, on the counter-terrorism -ter aspect of it, on uh, boots, on, boots on the ground really. Uh, while this is an important aspect, it's absolutely not sufficient. And what's needed, as we see, is a shift towards a much more human-centered approach. There is a need to start working not just with a military framing, but in fact with a human with a human security uh, type of framework that would allow us to address the multi-dimensional nature of uh, the factors that are affecting people's security in the Sahel. And in this context, then, climate security obviously becomes a relevant element, even to put on the table of uh, the Security Council. So there, there is, in theory, some kind of agreement about that. So you will rarely hear um, uh, international uh, partners or actors um, frontally just oppose this idea, but the challenge is to move from, uh, from speeches really to practice. And this is where the shift is very hard to, to see. So we have a wealth of um, policies that talk about integration, that talk about nexuses, that talk about how we should be looking uh, at the bigger picture, but really this does not translate into practice. Um, there are a few examples of good ideas, but that are still at a very local level, uh, I, either supported by specific NGOs or things like that, but there is still, and I think the, the the ambassador just mentioned that quite well, um, uh, a lack of political uptake by states, by uh, or supranational organizations to make sure that actually we work with a human security framework and not just with a military one. So, so that actually that's a, leads my question to, to Bruno. Bruno, I have to imagine in your position, you often brief policymakers um, on you know, security issues in, in the region. Um, what arguments do you see uh, help support that kind of lack of, or help push against the lack of political uptake as Ornella just described in terms of a more broadened definition of uh, security in the region. So what arguments do you make when you're briefing policymakers about why we need to embed climate security and food security paradigms into broader security uh, discussions in the region? Yeah. Um, I, I, if we talk about climate security, I think really the key issue is about conflict prevention. It's about preventing conflict in many ways. Um, if it is about solving current uh, security issues, um, and whatnot, the, the, the challenge is temporal here. I mean, the time frame, in other words, is much different. Climate change is something that is happening, obviously, but is it needs a policy response over decades and whatnot, and not on current matters. And and usually a security community and a community, pardon me, or if you look at the UN Security Council, they work in the short term, so they react. They're not very good at prevention. They don't think in that sort of long term. And it, to go back maybe to UN Security Council, I mean, there's no, uh, despite the fact that they talk about climate change more and more so, there's absolutely no consensus on whether, and I mean, the Germans tried, and maybe our friend from Norway will try as well, but there's no consensus that uh, the Security Council should 
uh, work on climate change or, or, or that it needs to even consider that sort of thing or that it's part of its mandate. So even that that work uh, uh, needs to be done. And it, I, like I said, it needs to be tied back, I think, to the issue of prevention and what that actually means. And the international peace and security architecture in the past and currently has been very bad at doing that. Uh, and so I wanted to turn to Catherine uh, Loon. Um, so Ornella used a a, um, a phrase that I think is is useful. She says that a lot of these conversations uh, that have broad agreements about the need to integrate security and climate issues uh, don't necessarily translate into practice. So what I wanted to ask you is what do you need on the ground to ensure that this broadened perspective on climate security is harnessed, one, to prevent conflicts in ways that uh, Bruno just alluded to, and also how do we ensure that you know, redefined, broadened notions of security are actually put into practice in a way that improves people's lives? So on the conflict prevention side of things, I'm not in a very good position to uh, to comment because we're actually there to respond to humanitarian needs and we're looking at prevention when it comes to preventing exposure to the impacts of natural disasters, for instance. But we're not very much looking into how do we prevent conflict because we don't see this as part of our role. We see this as critical as part of a much broader discussion, but this is not necessarily where we put our focus. In terms of how does a greater understanding of or an understanding of security as a broader question than hard security, but human security, and how does that feed into our work. I mean, I, I cannot agree more with Ornella that we need to having to be having this discussion with an understanding of security that goes beyond military security. And that is an understanding of security as capturing food security and water security and so on and so forth. So human security. And this is the basis for our, for our work. I mean, the, the way humanitarian actors try to respond is through looking at how do we ensure that people can survive, and I would not say strive because that would be very optimistic, but can survive, which entails that they are safe in all ways that can be um, discussed here. It's very clear to us that it requires a coordinated effort among a large number of actors. The humanitarian response is a very narrow part of that response. I mean, you do need hard security as part of this response. I mean, people need to live in safety if we want them to be able to be secure as a whole. But then we also need to be looking into much broader developmental responses that we are not able to deliver, but that, that are actually, that are essential if we want to be looking into longer term security. I mean, if we're speaking of what we're talking about here is climate adaptation so people can live safely. Climate adaptation requires development. It requires that people have access to infrastructure and to energy and so on and so forth. So, I mean, you're basically looking at how do you set the foundations for people to be able to live in safety and in dignity, and that requires a coordinated effort. So, I mean, to come back to your question, what does that mean for us? I mean, broad human security considerations are the prism through which our work can be defined, but with the full recognition that it has to be a collective work. It cannot be the sole work of humanitarian actors because we cannot ensure that people are that the responses are at the scale that's required to ensure that people can live safely and in full dignity. 
thank you. Uh, and now uh, to Robert, can you describe what CGIAR has already done to contribute to the scientific understanding of the impact of climate change on people in the region? And what kinds of climate science research would be useful to move the discussion forward on this topic of climate security in the Sahel? Thanks, uh, Mark. Uh, there are a number of international agricultural research centers uh, in the Sahel region. For instance, ICRISAT, uh, focusing on semi-arid areas, uh, IMI on water, ILRI on livestock, ICRAF on agroforestry, and so on and so forth. And these centers have been conducting some sort of tremendous research and development activities uh, to generate scientific knowledge that is really aiming to support, uh, I would say the kind of regional and national stakeholders, uh, as well as communities to make science-informed decision for adaptive measures. And uh, like Katrin said, uh, it is important to really work with all the different stakeholders from regional to national to community level in order to provide the evidence-based information that will allow these actors to mainstream climate change and variability into their respective strategies, policies, and development agenda. And so, so the CGIA has been working closely with a number of partners uh, from regional level like ECOWAS, but also with uh, uh, climate centers like Agrimet, um, uh, other research network, PORAF, and the National Agricultural Research Institution in order to generate a certain number of uh, scientific and technical information of relevance to really improving the adaptive capacity of actors. I can give you example, for instance, the projections of climate and the impact on livelihood. There are a lot of studies by IFPRI climate risk profile and vulnerability studies, uh, the uh, synthesis and inventory of adaptive options that can be considered, for instance, for the national adaptation planning of the nationally determined contribution of countries. And uh, as a good example, we are also working with communities uh, through what we call the climate smart villages, where we work in a participatory manner in order to generate context-specific technologies that will enable communities to valorize what exists in terms of resources, water, land, livestock, etc., in order to sustain their the, the, the livelihood in a difficult environment. Of course, we are also capacitating uh, the, uh, the capacity of all the stakeholders with the knowledge that I mentioned, but moving forward, I would see two or three important points in terms of uh, agenda where the CGIAR can invest more. For instance, uh, the nexus between climate and security, I think people mentioned it, need to, to be better investigated for a better understanding of what are the factors that are in play. For instance, migration dynamic can modify or exacerbate the different climatic factors. And these are some connections with conflict. Another example is, for instance, uh, the development of models or mechanisms for managing the tension and conflict around resources. 
I think this is an important area where research can also invest. And like I said, the last point is that it is really important to work with communities because this is where we can generate the evidence of what works under which condition and then inform the uh, upper level uh, policy strategies for really uh, mitigating conflicts. Thanks. Uh, thank you, thank you. And, and to Madam Koti, picking up on, on Robert's points about the need to mainstream these kind of diverse perspectives from different fields of, of science uh, and security, how do you, how can we in a more systematic way uh, make sure that these diverse voices are integrated uh, in conversations and key discussions uh, about security issues in the region? I mean, you know, how do you create a, a platform in which these linkages uh, can be made and brought before the international community uh, so that the international community and, and local governments and well can think through these issues in a more holistic way? Thank you. Uh, that's a big and important question. Um, I think there is all, already quite a lot of work being done, as some of the other panelists have, have uh, alluded to. Uh, there, there is a lot of research that is uh, going on, and, and uh, uh, some uh, institutions also work quite closely with uh, uh, diplomats or, or national uh, institutions in, in countries affected. Um, uh, I think at least, uh, again, thinking about us as a, as a Security Council uh, member in, in a few months, uh, we think it is very uh, necessary for uh, the UN member states to uh, have access to reliable and comprehensive information. Uh, and of course, uh, if the, the Secretary, Secretary General of the UN is briefing uh, the, the member states and briefing the Security Council, uh, that is uh, an important voice uh, to, to show uh, why climate change uh, and security is an important issue. Uh, we, we also see that uh, our Swedish friends have strengthened the capacity of the UN system to, to this end. Uh, and uh, we, of course, uh, would like to, to continue and, and work uh, along those lines and, and bringing good analysis and, and, and uh, also expecting uh, uh, research institutions to, to provide clear recommendations for action to, to, the, to the Security Council. Um, and of course, uh, we need to bring this into action. Uh, and and uh, thinking again about the UN uh, bringing bringing climate change and security more uh, explicitly into the, the mandates of UN operations uh, could be one way of, of doing it. Uh, and uh, and also, uh, as I say, uh, having good good conversations with the the countries in in uh, in question, but also the regions, as we are now talking about the Sahel and the Lake Chad, that are regions affected by by these uh, by these issues. Uh, thank you. So we uh, just have a few minutes left, and I, I want to give everyone an opportunity to make some very brief uh, concluding remarks. Please keep your remarks remarks to to about a minute, uh, and uh, I'll will turn to uh, Ornella, um, who who has uh, you know, spoken about broad issues regarding security and, and climate in the region. And I'd actually like you and your concluding remarks just to 
ground this for us? In what ways does security prevention, does, con does uh, conflict prevention and climate security interact with each other? So I think um, uh, many of my colleagues here have mentioned this in interaction in terms of the need to look at the, very, the various ways in which, well, um, when, when we don't address issues around um, um, uh, scarce resources and, and the way they're managed, then this leads to conflict and this needs to be addressed. But I think actually that there's much more to the, the connection between climate and security than the prevention part. There is um, a reaction and an immediate and strategic uh, dimension to it around the issue of protection of civilians. And again, Mali is a great case uh, study for this. Um, there, there, just this year, just from the beginning of this year, there's been already over 130 village attacks in the central region of Mopti only in Mali, um, leaving something close to um, uh, 2,000 fatalities across the country. At an overwhelming majority, these, village, uh, these villagers who were attacked either lost their cattle or had it stolen, sometimes burnt alive for herders, or if they were farmers, then they had to flee from, from their fields and have been unable to, to, uh, to cultivate. So of course, these raises enormous risks for food security and economic uh, recovery uh, in, in the region. But this goes way beyond uh, the individuals who personally experience these attacks. It also affects the million of people down the line who live from their production. And the fact that we're not addressing um, uh, these environmental dimensions of the crisis, but also uh, the additional fragility and uncertainty that uh, climate, um, climate variability creates in this context, yeah. of course, keeps making our response uh, slower and less efficient. So I do think that there are a few very strategic points to uh, to make if we want to bring this conversation at a higher level. Thank you. Thank you very much. And, and, and to that end, Bruno, uh, how in, in the last, uh, in just one minute, can you describe you know, one or two action items you would like to see taken uh, to advance this conversation forward? Well, I agree with what Robert said in, in particular, which is that we're not quite clear yet what it means to talk and do climate uh, security. It is a huge conceptual, practical, even philosophical uh, challenge. And so we need to think uh, outside of the box in many ways, because part, personally, I think that if we talk about protection of civilians, if we talk about reacting to concrete or immediate effects of climate on conflict, we're not solving anything. We're just reacting and we're just doing this sort of thing that the peace and security architecture has always done. So I still think that we need to move forward and think long term. And that's a huge challenge. What does it mean to reconceptualize and rethink security development uh, 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 and so on and so forth in protection if we think about 20, 30 years down uh, the line? given that obviously if you wage war, uh, you won't be able to solve conflict. You won't be able to adapt to conflict or mitigate, comp uh, pardon me, uh, mm -hmm. adapt or mitigate climate effects. So I, I think that's a huge challenge. And uh, most of what we've done so far, or certainly within the, mm -hmm. the international community is not uh, ready for that sort of a theoretical and conceptual challenge. Uh, and uh, Catherine Loon, to you, can you identify a single action item that you would like to see uh, moved on in order to advance um, our discussion today? 
we need to find ways to bring climate action to conflict affected communities. I mean, that's uh, that's a very humanitarian perspective on this question. But what we're seeing is disproportionate impacts of climate risks on conflict affected communities and hardly any comprehensive response to help these communities. So to us, there's a major gap. So there's a recognition of the challenges that this is creating for communities but we remain unable to develop something that would be a comprehensive response for these communities. So, I mean, the term climate action encompasses just about everything. So we'd probably need to define it, but we need to be looking into responses mm -hmm. that make sense and that integrate long-term projections of risks, because otherwise we are providing very ad hoc responses to something that is a, a long sustained problem. Thank you. And, and uh, Robert, over to you with a, a final thought. Thank you, Mark. I would just say that uh, geographically speaking, the Sahel is already um, a very complex environment. And then when we bring in all the social, economic, uh, cultural aspect of things that are happening uh, with the different populations there, I think it's just increased the, the difficult uh, situation of how to, inter to interact concretely among the different actors, but also among the populations. So I would just say that it's really important to uh, investigate really in the ground, what are the priority factors that need to be understood uh, with the communities, because they are the ones who know exactly what has been working before uh, for, for, to avoid conflicts and so on. And then based on that, how can we manage the different resources to avoid this kind of tension, especially in the context of, of climate variability? So research has to deal with it, but not alone, working with the other actors, NGOs, uh, donors, politicians, and so on and so forth. Thank you. And finally, to Madam Koti, can you give viewers and listeners uh, an action item or something that you think needs to be done to better integrate climate variability and food system security and into new approaches to security thinking in the region? Thank you. Well, I think listening to, to the other panelists, uh, I realize that we all have a role to play in this at different levels. Uh, and, and I think that if we uh, can uh, all contribute to enhance partnerships on all these levels, uh, that will already uh, make us go a step for, forward. Uh, in fact, Norway has uh, already kind of started uh, some of the work that we see uh, will be useful uh, by supporting the UN Department of Political and Peacekeeping Affairs work with UNOVAS and ECOWAS uh, through the climate security mechanism. Uh, and they are also cooperating with regional bodies in the Sahel and Lake Chad region. So that is kind of one example of what can be, be done. We also, of course, uh, cooperate closely with the CGIRR and, uh, and uh, organizations like the Sahel and West Africa Club who are also working on you know, promoting information analysis and trying to make them into into policies or promote the, the fact to that they need to be be uh, translated into good policies in the region so i think that is uh, what would be an important thing for us and again uh, 
when we are in the Security Council, we will, of course, uh, do our best to promote this issue as an important, uh, an important uh, uh, agenda item. Uh, well, well, thank you. Thank you to the panelists uh, for this robust conversation today. I think we have uh, good opportunities to advance this conversation forward. And I'm glad, if nothing else, to have introduced you all to each other through this discussion. And uh, we can continue this conversation. Uh, I am now going to turn the panel back over to Rachel uh, for some concluding remarks. Thank you all and uh, much appreciated. And let's, let's uh, keep moving this conversation forward. So over to you, Rachel. Thank you, Mark and panelists. What a fantastic, complex discussion that we had there. Um, I, I see what we hear about local levels, we hear about how the Sahel is also this area, it was described as a malleable space for intervention. Um, it was a non-governed space, it was seen to be military and an area of, of, of conflict. And yet we hear that this is um, a place where, where local herders are, are fighting with, with farmers, with, with pastoralists. Uh, and the call to action has been that we need to think both short term, yes, we need to protect people, but we need to have long term uh, adaptation policies that look at how we can bring in more climate resilient crops, more climate resilient um, livelihoods. Where are we going to be able to support those people that are, are that, 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 that we would describe that are, are in extreme poverty? How can we bring development with those immediate needs of assistance? So I, I think it's wonderful that we've started. There were there was a lot of, we, we said at the beginning that we wanted to break down um, silos and there's an incredible amount of thinking across political science, international thinking here, climate and water science, as well as really understanding uh, the humanian, uh, humanitarian complexities in this region. Next time our video is going to be, our, our seminar series is going to be in Colombia. We're going to go to Latin America. We're going to see again how climate security is really um, affecting uh, the areas in, in this uh, country. Um, this will be on the 17th of September. And we really hope you'll be able to join us for that. And to start that, we're now going to show a short video giving you an introduction to the theme of those times. Thank you very much, panelists. Thank you very much, moderator. It's been a fascinating set of discussions and much for us to work on and think about. Thank you. All right. Thank you all for listening and a big thank you to each of our panelists and of course to CGIAR for partnering with the podcast to shine a spotlight on climate security. To participate in the next live taping as part of this series, please visit climatesecurity.cgiar.org where you can also find links to other episodes that are part of this series. Thank you, and we'll see you next time. Bye.